0: Grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Well, welcome back, and welcome to those of you who are joining us via the live stream. We are studying the epistle of James, and if you have your Bibles, please open them to James chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 14, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. Again, I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. You may be reading from the NIV or the King James Version, whatever it may be, but either translation, any of those translations will be fine. So, James chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, If it does not have works, it's dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, it was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now this is undoubtedly the most famous section of the Epistle of James. If anybody remembers anything at all about this little book, they remember this section about the relationship between faith and works, and they remember the next section, chapter 3, about the taming of the tongue. And the reason why we remember this whole section about the relationship between faith and works is, of course, because of Martin Luther, the great reformer. Luther, as you've heard me say before, did not like the book of James. He referred to it as a right strawy epistle, meaning that it did not have the weight, did not have the magnitude of the other New Testament works. And it's not hard to understand why Luther was so upset when you take a look at his own life. We said that Martin Luther had tried for many years to earn God's favor. He'd become an Augustinian monk. He went on pilgrimages. He went to Mass on a daily basis. He made his confession. He did his acts of contrition. He did everything that the medieval church required of a person to come into a right relationship with God, and yet no matter how hard Luther tried, and by the way, he tried a lot harder than most people, He nevertheless never felt as though he had been accepted by God. And on more than one occasion, he had reached the point of despair, almost thinking that he could never be saved, until one night when he was reading from St. Paul's Epistle to the Romans, that first chapter, and he came across this line, and the just shall live by faith. Now, Luther knew what that word just meant. It didn't mean purity of character. It meant to be justified. It meant to be lined up with God. You've heard me talk about this before. If you're doing word processing on your computer and you want to make everything look neat and tidy, you blacken in the screen, go to the top, and hit the justified button, and what happens is that all your margins go flush. They they line up. They're justified. And that's what it means to be in a right relationship with God. It means to be justified. It means to be lined up with God. And Luther thought that the way you got lined up with God, you came into a right relationship with God, was through works, through effort. Until he read that passage from Romans, and then all of a sudden the light came on from him. He came into a right relationship with God, not on the basis of anything that he did, but entirely on the basis of what Christ had done on his behalf, And he received that by faith. And a whole world opened up for Martin Luther. He called this doctrine of justification by faith the doctrine of the standing church. All of Christianity, the gospel, Luther believed, stood or fell with that great message of justification by faith. And that became one of the rallying cries, of course, of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. Sola fide. Faith alone. We're saved how? By faith alone. And then he read these words by James. James says, And so we are not justified by works alone, or by faith alone, but by works. And Luther was very discouraged when he read the epistle of James. If it had been within his power, he would have torn the entire epistle of James out of the New Testament and gotten rid of it all altogether. Now, we know that he didn't ultimately do that, and we can be thankful that he didn't ultimately do that, but he didn't like the book of James, and he made that point very clear for this very reason. He felt that it undercut the message of the gospel, But as I said on the Rally Sunday sermon, this just goes to show us that sometimes even great people, even giants of the faith like Martin Luther, can be rather short-sighted. Because James is not really saying anything here that contradicts what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans. What he says actually complements what the Apostle Paul says in Romans. And we need to understand that. So what is James saying? If he's really complimenting what Paul is saying about being justified by faith and not by works, what is James claiming? Well, in order to understand what James is really trying to say, we need to talk a little bit about faith. The biblical notion of faith. And the first thing we need to acknowledge is that, yes, Luther was right Faith is central to the Christian life. You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven without faith. It's as simple as that. It is the essential ingredient. You know, there are some recipes that if you leave out the essential ingredient, it doesn't matter if you keep everything else in there, it's not going to come out right. And that's the way it is in the Christian life. If you leave out faith, it doesn't matter what else you have. You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And the New Testament makes this point very clear. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, writing to that audience, says that we walk by faith as Christian people and not by sight. In Matthew chapter 17, Jesus told his disciples, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed. Ever seen a mustard seed? It it, it is a very small thing, but he says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you'll be able to move mountains. You'll be able to say to that mountain, be uprooted and cast into the sea. And he said, it will be done for you. And in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul, as he's talking about the spiritual warfare that you and I are engaged in, talks about the various pieces of armor That we have to put on every single day when we go out to do battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And he talks about putting on the helmet of salvation. And he talks about the breastplate of righteousness. And he talks about taking up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But he says you also have to take the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. The shield of faith. So, the New Testament is very clear. Faith, Luther got this right, faith is absolutely essential to the Christian life. Now, Paul really helps us to understand this in his letter to the Ephesians. Uh, As most of you know, Ephesians is one of my favorite books in the entire New Testament. It's a mini course, basically, in theology that is centered on the church. And the second chapter is my favorite chapter in that book. So turn to Ephesians chapter 2 for just a moment, and Paul goes on to explain to us why it is that faith is essential to our salvation. I think he does a better job spelling it out here in Ephesians than he even does in Romans. So in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is describing what you and I once were apart from our relationship with God. This is what you once were. There used to be an old movie starring Barbara Streisand entitled The Way We Were. Well, this is the way we were. This is what Paul is describing. And look at what he says, chapter 2, verse 1 And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, so that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now you could hardly find a more depressing picture of the human condition than what Paul gives us there in those opening verses of Ephesians chapter 2. He says a number of things. First of all, he says, you were once dead in your trespasses and in your sins in the way you once lived. Now, you say, well, what do you mean, Paul? You're either dead or you're alive. Paul basically says, from a spiritual point of view, we are zombies. There's a zombie craze out there in the world right now. You know what the zombie is? The zombie is the living dead, and that's what Paul says we were. We were physically alive, walking around, living our lives, conducting our business, but spiritually speaking, in terms of our relationship with God, we were dead. We were dead to God. And we were dead, why? Because of our transgressions and our sins. Now here's the question. How much good can a dead person do? Sometimes when I'm working through a sermon, and maybe I've shared this with you before, I'll go out there in the cemetery, because it's a quiet place and I'm not likely to be interrupted. And I'll try to work through an idea. I'll try to work through a sermon topic, and sometimes, just sometimes not here at St. Philips, but in other places where I've been, preaching to the gravestones is pretty good practice for the congregation on Sunday morning. But I'll tell you this much. Now I'll just watch it back there, Richard.) <laughs> But the interesting thing is this. As many times as I've preached in a cemetery, I've never had anyone respond. I've never had anybody, that's right, complain about the length of the sermon. That's the positive side of it. The negative side of it is nobody's ever responded to the altar call either. And the reason is because they're dead. They can't do it. They're incapable of doing anything. That's how Paul describes the human condition. He says, apart from our relationship with Christ, you and I are dead. Now what he's telling us is there is absolutely nothing that you and I can do to get into a right relationship with God. And we're not only dead, to make matters worse, he says, we're also children of wrath. Now that's a dramatic description as well, because most of us, When we think of ourselves, think of ourselves as children of God. Aren't we all children of God? We think of the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man. We're all God's children. Well, that's a very quaint notion, but I want you to understand something. There's nothing biblical about it. The Bible never says that you and I, simply by inclusion within the human race, are children of God. Now, we are creatures of God and even exalted creatures made in the image of God. But we are not children of God except by adoption. That point is made very clear in the prologue to John's Gospel. And he came to that which was his own, but his own received him not. But to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right and the power to become children of God. Children not by a father's will or the desires of the flesh, but children by faith. So that's how we become children of God. So what Paul is saying is, what we once were, we were dead. Furthermore, we were under God's judgment. We were under wrath. And if dead people can't do anything for themselves, what's their only hope? is if God will do something for them. I've sometimes said that you and I, spiritually speaking, prior to our conversion, were very much like Lazarus when he was physically dead. And he's in the tomb, and you've got all those people who've come out from Jerusalem, you've got the sisters that are there, everybody's outside the tomb, and believe me, in the first century, when they put on a funeral, they really put on a funeral. You actually, get this, had professional mourners that you could hire. You know, we have professional singers that we hire for the choir sometimes. These people brought out professional mourners who would weep and wail. It was a big production, and those people are all outside the tomb. They're making a great deal of noise, and they're crying for Lazarus to come out, but he can't do it. And he can't do it, why? Because he's dead. It's not a trick question. So something has to happen. The Lord of life has to show up on the scene and do for Lazarus what he could not do for himself, call him forth. And Paul says, that's you and me, spiritually speaking. We're dead, we're under God's wrath, and dead people can't do anything, and unless the Lord of life shows up on the scene and does something for us, we're lost forever. And yet that is exactly what he does. Look at verse 4, this wonderful word, but. But but God who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Now, I want you to notice how he puts it here. But God who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive. Why did God make us alive? Because we deserved it? Because he loved us. Why does he love us? Because we're lovable people? It doesn't say that either. It says because of his great mercy, he loved us even when we were dead, and he made us alive together with Christ. And that's why Paul adds this, by grace you have been saved. Now, that's the key phrase, really. By grace you have been saved. And we said that grace is God's undeserved, unearned favor. God does for us what we are incapable of doing for ourselves. And then he says, and raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith. In other words, faith, even faith, is a gift. You can't make faith into a work because only living people can have faith. And unless God has made us alive, we could not have that faith. Oftentimes, people think that faith precedes conversion. I'm here to tell you something That's not the way Paul puts it. Faith is a gift. Faith follows from being made alive again. In other words, we think that if we have faith, we'll be born again. Actually, what Paul says is we're born again, and then we're given faith. God makes us alive even when we're dead, and then he gives us the gift of faith, and faith is the conduit by which we receive his mercy. And that's why he goes on to say, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So there it is. That's that's the heart of the gospel, and that's the message that changed Martin Luther's life. And it's only when we recognize that that's what we once were and this is what we have become and it is all of God's mercy and grace, only then can we truly appreciate the work of the Savior. And this is also why Hebrews 11 says that without faith, it's impossible to please God because you'd be spiritually dead. So, as I said, Luther was right. Faith is essential. Only living people can have faith. And God has to make us alive again. So faith is absolutely central to the New Testament. But we need to understand very clearly what the Bible means by faith. Because I think there are a lot of competing notions out there in our culture as to what faith is. I was walking through a store about a month ago over in Mount Pleasant. And they had all these signs in the store. And one of them simply said, Believe. Believe. And I thought to myself, well, that's lovely. Believe in what? You know, believe in the abominable snowman? Believe in what Richard Dawkins called the flying spaghetti monster? Believe in what? What exactly are we supposed to believe in? What does it mean to believe? See, we're living in a culture in which people think that that's all you have to do. You have to believe. It doesn't matter what you believe in as long as you believe. But I'm here to tell you today, that is absolute nonsense. If you think about it, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. When the Bible talks about faith, biblical faith, the faith that is the result of true salvation, it really means three things simultaneously. There are three things that are essential to what we would call saving faith. All right? The Protestant Reformers used three Latin phrases to describe these three elements. I'll try to translate them in English for you as best I can. The first word is notitia. And what it means is content. You have to know what you believe in. It's not just believing in anything, it's believing in something, something very specific. This is what we mean when we stand up every Sunday and profess our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. We're saying that we believe in certain things. And incidentally, the Nicene Creed, hammered out in 325, are the things that are the bare essentials of Christianity. There's a lot more to believe than just the Nicene Creed. But you have to believe the Nicene Creed at least in order to be a Christian. You have to believe in one God, the Father of the Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth. You have to believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was crucified under Pontius Pilate and on the third day raised again. You have to believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, and who spake by the prophets. And you have to believe in the invisible church, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Now, those are the things that you have to believe in. You have to have faith that those things are true. So that's the first element of biblical faith. It's just as believing in anything. It's believing in some very specific things. Here's the second element of faith. You have to agree to it. It is possible for somebody to say, yes, that is the content of the Christian faith, but I don't necessarily subscribe to it. So if you're going to have the saving faith, the faith that is the evidence of a regenerate life, then you have to agree to it. This is very important because you'll recall that the Pharisees had faith. They had faith in God. They were theologically sound. They subscribed to all of these things. It's interesting to note that Jesus really didn't dispute their theology. It wasn't their theology so much that Jesus disputed so much as it was their practice of their religion. So you have to have content. There are certain things you have to believe in. You have to also agree with those things. Say that, yes, I acknowledge that they are true. But here's the third thing that is required for a living faith. There has to be commitment to it. You cannot only say that those things are the content of the faith, you can not only say that I agree to those things, there has to be a level of commitment as well. I like to say that biblical faith is like getting married. You know, in order for a real marriage to take place, You have to have all three of these elements, don't you? You have to get to know the person. It's not going to be a marriage if you don't know the person. Now, I know some fathers and mothers believe in arranged marriages. And believe me, if I could arrange a marriage for my 17-year-old daughter, I would do it. (laughs) I don't think she's going to go for it. But nevertheless, you get the idea. But in order for there to be a successful marriage, you have to know the person, don't you? And not only know them... You have to love them. It's not enough simply to say, well, yeah, I know them. It's not going to be a very successful marriage if that's the extent of your knowledge. You've got to know them, but you've got to love them. But there's still something else that is required in order for there to be a marriage. There has to be commitment. I think that's one of the major problems for young people today. They sometimes have the first part, they sometimes have the second part, but they don't have the third part, the commitment part. Where you commit to each other till death we do part. Think about that, death. How did Meatloaf say it? I said I'd love you to the end of time, so now I'm praying for the end of time. (laughs) Sometimes it's that way, isn't it? (laughs) Nevertheless, commitment is absolutely essential, if you think about it, to a true marriage. Well, what's happening with us? We are being united to Christ. That's the way Paul puts it there in Ephesians. United to Christ, lifted up with Him into the heavenly realms. The bride of Christ is the church, and you and I are the members of that bride. He's the bridegroom. That's an image that we find throughout the Scriptures. Jesus uses it over and over again, the image of a marriage. But in order for there to be a marriage, all three of those things are absolutely essential. That's what the Bible means by faith. You subscribe to the content, you're committed to it, even to death do you part. Now this does raise the question then, well what then is the relationship between biblical faith which is the result of a regenerate life, and works. Because Paul makes it very clear there, you are saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, and he is very clear. In fact, he's emphatic. It is not by works. Let me repeat that again. You are saved by grace through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not by works works. What do you and I contribute to the process of salvation? Nothing. One Archbishop of Canterbury once said, the only thing that you and I contribute to the process of our salvation is the sin from which we need to be redeemed. That and only that. That's why Luther said, we are saved sola fide, by faith alone. And yet James clearly says that it's not by faith alone. It's by works. Now, as I said, that might seem as though James is contradicting what Paul has just said in Ephesians. But that's why we have to go back to Ephesians chapter 2 and read the next verse. Everybody remembers Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. You're saved by grace through faith, not by works so that no man may boast. Hallelujah. But they forget the very next verse. Verse, for we are his workmanship, verse 10, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. This is Paul's way of saying, we're not saved by our works, but we were saved for works. Do you understand that? We're not saved by our works, but we are saved for good works works. God made us a new creation for this very purpose, that we might walk in good works. Well, if you go back and read very carefully what James is saying there in his epistle, it's obvious he is saying precisely the same thing that the Apostle Paul is saying. Now, his language is a little bit different. He's not denying the doctrine of justification by faith, but he is saying that faith without works is not real faith. It's not real biblical faith. It's nothing more than intellectual assent. And he goes on to say that that kind of faith is no better than the faith of the demons. It's interesting, isn't it? The demons did believe in Jesus. They had at least those first two elements or at least the first element, let's put it that way, of biblical faith. They agreed that Jesus was the Son of God. They even had part of the second, in the sense that they didn't didn't just say that that was what other people claimed, they knew it to be true themselves. The part they lacked was the commitment part, didn't they? They believed that Jesus was the Son of God, they didn't believe in him as the Son of God. So what's the place of works in the Christian life? Well, our works don't save us, but they are the evidence of our salvation, my friends. If we're truly saved, if we truly have biblical faith, the result of that will be a difference in the way we conduct our lives. Which means that good works in the life of the Christian are meant to do two things for us. One, they are meant to authenticate the Christian life. It's like watching the Antiques Roadshow. How many of you have ever watched the Antiques Roadshow? And somebody will come up, now I'm not always sure. Sometimes I think these people, when they bring these things in, they know exactly what they've got. But sometimes you know what will happen. They'll bring in something and they'll set it down and the person will begin to take a look at it and describe it and all of that. And then all of a the sudden they get to the end and they say, well, you've got a real treasure here. You may not have realized it, but I'm here to tell you that this thing is worth $50,000. And then they have the reaction of that woman there on the right of the screen. <gasps> it's been authenticated. It, it, it's It's genuine. It's a funny thing. I have two old clocks in our house, a number of old clocks, but two old tall case clocks in the house. And one of them wasn't chiming right. And so I called up a clocksmith. Brace yourself if you ever call up a clocksmith. Let me tell you something, because they're not cheap. But at any rate, this guy made house calls. He came down to take a look, and I said, he said, well, which one do you want me to look at? I said, well, I actually have two that aren't chiming. And I said, well, he said, well, show me which one you're more concerned with. So I showed him one. And he goes, ah, that's a nice clock. I took him in to show him the other clock, and he said, now that is an interesting clock. And I said, really? I acquired it, I really didn't know a whole lot about it. And he said, well, I'll tell you about it. He said, that clock is 250 years old. I had no clue. He said, it was either made in 1751 or 1761. And he was able to authenticate it for me. That is what our works are meant to do. To authenticate our faith so that we might recognize that it is the genuine article. And here's the second thing that faith does. It not only authenticates, or works do, they not only authenticate our faith, they give us a sense of assurance. Let me ask you a question. If you were to die today, if you were to just drop dead from an aneurysm or a heart attack, this is wonderful lunchtime conversation, by the way, would you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you're going to heaven? And and if you say yes to that, on the basis of what? On the basis of faith, okay, but how do you know that your faith is a genuine faith? How do you know that it's an authentic faith? How do you know that it's not just intellectual assent? One way is by taking a look at your life and asking yourself yourself the question, has my faith made any difference? Has it made any difference? You might say, well, I don't know. That, that, That sounds very much like works, but... Works that lead to salvation, no, that's not the way it works at all. It is the faith that results in good works. Jesus describes it in terms of fruit. Fruit. He does this in Matthew chapter 7. If you turn, that's the portion of the Sermon on the Mount, the latter portion of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's interesting how Jesus describes it. Now, he is describing false prophets, and so forth, but the principle applies across the board. Chapter 7, verse 15, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, fruit is a wonderful analogy. Because fruit is something that happens naturally. If a tree is healthy, it doesn't work at it. A healthy apple tree doesn't have to work at producing apples. A healthy peach tree doesn't have to work at producing peaches. If it's healthy, that happens naturally, doesn't it? Jesus is saying, if we are in a right relationship with God, if we really do have genuine faith, that will be evident in the way we live our lives. The good works will be not the means to salvation, but the consequence of it, the result of it the fruit of it. And so you look at your life and you say, do I see any fruit? And if you see fruit in your life, my friends, that is the evidence that God has been at work in you. That is the evidence that you are regenerate. That is the evidence that if you were to be called home today, you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you're going to be with the Lord. Now there's something else that needs to be added to this. There is one more layer here. When we talk about good works, when we talk about spiritual fruit, what exactly are we talking about? Are we talking about those good works that are pleasing to the culture, that are pleasing to society, that are pleasing to the world? No. We're talking about spiritual fruit. Paul speaks, for example, of the fruit of the Spirit. What's the fruit of the Spirit? Okay. I heard some of it. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Oh boy, some people are squeamish now. Those are the fruits of the Spirit. Those are the good works that the Spirit of God produces in the life of the believer. And those are the good works that authenticate the Christian life and give the believer assurance. So you need to ask yourself, is my life, and by the way, this is important too, it's not the fruits of the Spirit. It is the fruit of the Spirit in other words, you don't just get one or two of those things. Well, you know, Rachel, she got love, but Jeff, he got joy. And somebody else got peace, and somebody else got patience, and somebody else got self-control. Or what? No, it's the package. It's like a clump of grapes. The good works that are the evidence of salvation. Or all of those things. So you have to ask yourself, is my life characterized by love? And we're not just talking about the world's idea of love. We're talking about agape, self-sacrificing, self-emptying love. Love, joy. Are you a joyful person? I'm not talking about being happy. Happiness is dependent upon your circumstances. Joy transcends your circumstances. Love, joy, peace, patience. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Who is the only person in all of history that exemplified those things perfectly? That's right. So when Paul talks about the good works that are the evidence of the Christian life, what he's talking about is Christ-likeness. That's what he means by fruit The evidence of the transformed, regenerate life is Christlikeness. Those are the good works that are pleasing to God. Now, there are lots of works out there that are pleasing to the culture and pleasing to our fellow man. But those that are pleasing to God are those that are characterized most fully in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, you might look at yourself and say, well... I see some of those things, but I wish I had a lot more joy, or a lot more love, or a lot more peace, or a whole lot more self-control. The real question is, do you see those things in your life? And as you have grown, as you've grown older as a Christian, do you see those things becoming more prevalent in your life or less prevalent in your life? Because none of us exemplify all of those things perfectly. None of us is the mere image of Jesus. And that's okay. Because we're told in the New Testament that if we're not producing as much fruit in one area as we should, then the vine dresser's going to come along and he's going to prune you. And pruning is necessary. What do you do with flowers when they dry up and shrivel? You deadhead them, don't you? you? You cut off the dead parts so that what? So they can produce more flowers. You do the same thing with fruit trees. You prune them in order that they might produce more fruit. The question is not, am I producing an abundance of fruit? Jesus said sometimes it's, it's 30-fold, sometimes it's 100-fold. The question is, are you producing fruit? Are you growing with each passing day, with each passing year, in terms of your fellowship with Christ, are you growing to be more like Him? Or when you look at your life, do you see yourself being less like Him? Those are the works that are pleasing to God. It doesn't matter if it's pleasing to the society or not. The question is whether these are things that are pleasing to God. That's what genuine faith is and you'll know it by the way you live. James gives us two examples, going back now to the epistle of James, two examples of people whose faith was evident in the way they lived. The first example is Abraham. Now, Abraham's very important to the Jews because he's the father of the faith. And James refers here to that passage in Genesis that says that Abraham believed God And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Paul also hammers on this in his epistle to the Romans in chapter 4. This is his whole argument about faith. He says, how did Abraham, who is the father, the fountainhead of the Jewish faith, how was it that Abraham came to be in a right relationship with God? Was it by virtue of anything that he did? Paul says, no, it wasn't. It was by virtue of the fact that he believed God. Now, what did he believe? We're told that God came to Abraham and said that he would be the father of a great nation, that his heirs would be more plentiful than the sand on the sea and the stars in the sky. Well, that was really interesting because we're told that Abraham and Sarah were old. I think it's some of the bleakest descriptions of human beings anywhere in the Bible. I mean, it's a pitiful description of these two. Sarah is described. This is what we get about Sarah. She was well beyond childbearing age. How many of you would like to have that as a descriptor for your life? She was well beyond childbearing age. And Abraham's description is even better or worse, depending upon how you look at it. He was as good as dead. In other words, the situation was hopeless. But God comes to Abraham and he makes a promise. Now, Abraham knows his wife's well beyond childbearing age. Abraham knows that he's as good as dead. But we're told he believed God. He trusted God. That's the essence of biblical faith, trust. He trusted God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So that's what Paul says in Romans. this argument. He says, we come to be in a right relationship with God by faith. That's how Abraham came to be in a right relationship with God. God made him a promise, and he trusted God. He took God at his word. He believed God, and he came into a right relationship on the basis of his faith. But look at what James says about Abraham. Go back, if you will, to James chapter 2. He says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be, oh, excuse me, wrong section there? No, that's right. But be doers of the word and not hearers only. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural being. Oh, excuse me, I am in the wrong section. <laughs> Thinking to myself, goodness gracious. These, these, these are not working, these glasses. I'm going to have to get stronger glasses. Chapter 14. No, chapter 2, Verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself is dead. Verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it counted to him his righteousness. Now, He is simply echoing what we heard in Genesis and he's echoing exactly what Paul says, but then he goes on to say this, and he was called a friend of God, but then he goes on, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, why does he apply that to Abraham? We've already been told that Abraham believed God, trusted God, took him at his word, and was therefore brought into a right relationship with God. What he's really referring to here is not simply that Abraham believed God about the coming child, but that he believed God that this child would in fact be the fountain of an entire nation. Because you'll recall that God gave Abraham a son, son's name was Isaac, and then God tested Abraham and said, now I want that son back. You know the story. I want you to go, take the child with you, take some wood, and I want you to sacrifice Isaac. Now that's a test. I'm going to give you a child. That child is going to be the fountain of an entire nation so that through him your heirs will be more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sand on the beach, and then all of a sudden the Lord says, give him back to me. If you were Abraham, would you be able to do it? But see, taking God at his word is taking God at his word to the very end. It's a wonderful way the story is described. Abraham sets off, he takes the boy, he takes his servants, he takes the wood, he takes the knife, he takes everything that is necessary for the sacrifice, then he comes to a point and he stops and he says to the servants, you stay here. The boy and I are going forward to worship, and we will come back to you. Now that's interesting. If Abraham was going up there to sacrifice his son, one thing is very clear. They were not both coming back. One was coming back and one was not. Unless you believe God. And you trust that if God is going to take the child's life, somehow God is going to give that life back. It's one of the greatest examples of faith that you find anywhere in the scriptures. Abraham says, we will come back. He must have assumed that if he sacrificed his son, God would raise him from the dead. And that's why James said, so you see, Abraham was not merely justified by his faith. What he means was, it wasn't just intellectual assent. He didn't just theoretically believe in God. He put all of his hopes, all of his dreams, everything that he had on the line in trusting God. Even the life of his very own son. That's what it means to have faith. And so when God says, step out... We take him at his word and we step out. You know the old story about blonde Dan, who used to walk across the tightrope, across the Horseshoe Falls at Niagara Falls. On one occasion he went out in the middle of the, of the Horseshoe Falls on this tightrope and cooked an omelet. One of his most famous tricks was he would carry another man, one of his assistants, on his back, the whole way across the falls and then back again. And on one occasion he did this and the people were going, wow, they'd never seen anything like that. And he turned to one man and he said, Sir, do you believe I could do that with you? And the man said, Yes, I do. And Blondin said, Well, then climb up on my back. And the man said, Not on your life. (laughs) Theoretically, he believed, but that's not the same thing as putting your life on the line, is it? But that is exactly what Abraham did. And that's what James says is a genuine faith. It's not simply saying that you believe intellectually. It is trusting God with everything you have. He said Abraham did that, and Abraham wasn't alone. There's also this woman. It's very interesting. He uses her, but he uses the example of Rahab. Now, who is Rahab? Rahab was a prostitute. She was a Canaanite woman. She lived in the ancient town of Jericho. And when the children of Israel, after their wilderness wanderings, reached the point where they were about to cross the Jordan River and enter into the promised land, they sent spies out into the land. And those spies came to the home of Rahab, and she welcomed them in. Now, she welcomed them in, she gave them cover, and she helped them to escape their enemies at the risk of her own life. Now, apparently, she went on to believe in the God of the Hebrews, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Apparently, she believed in him. But it wasn't just believing intellectually. She put her life on the line, didn't she? And that's what James is talking about when he talks about genuine faith. It's a faith that makes a difference. It's a faith that takes a risk. If you're living a Christian life and there is no risk in it, if you are living a Christian life and there is no cost in it, then the chances are you are not really living the Christian life because you're not living by faith. And that's why James goes on to say that faith apart from works is what? Dead. It's a dead faith. It's nothing more than intellectual assent. True faith, he says, will be sincere. Now, I like that word, sincere. Paul uses it in Romans, chapter 12, he says, let your love be sincere. The history of that word is very interesting. What does the word sincere come from? It comes from the Latin, our word, the English word, sincere, comes from the Latin, sincera. And literally translated, it means without wax. In the ancient world, pottery was a big business. And they would make pottery, but as you know, sometimes when you're firing pottery in a kiln, it will crack. And if it cracks, well, it's pretty much worthless. You you can't put any kind of liquid in it. And so sometimes you'd get a dishonest dealer, and what he would do is he would melt down wax, and he would rub that into the cracks, and then he would paint over it, and he would sell it to you, and you'd take it home, and you'd put hot liquid in it, hot water or something like that, and the wax would melt, or you'd set it out in the sun and the wax would melt, and the thing would fall apart. And so they began to stamp things, pottery, with the words on the bottom, sincera, meaning without wax. That's where we get the word sincere. That's the Latin. But the Latin is actually a translation of the Greek. And the Greek is anupakritos. Pokritos, "anu." Anupokritos, it's the word from which we get our term hypocrite. Hypocrite. And what does the word anupokritos mean? Literally translated, it means without a mask. Without a mask. In ancient plays, in Greece especially, when you appeared on the stage as an actor, you would wear a mask. If it was a comedy, you wore a comedic mask. If it was a tragedy, you wore a tragic mask. And you didn't know who any of the players were until the end of the play when everyone would stand on the stage and they would remove their mask. When Jesus says that the Pharisees were hypocrites, that's what he meant. He meant they were wearing a mask. What James is saying is that genuine faith doesn't wear a mask. Genuine faith is sincere. Genuine faith is evident in the way we live our lives. It's how your faith is authenticated. And it's how you can have absolute assurance that you are indeed a child of God. Ask yourself, do I have the faith of Abraham? Do I have the faith of Rahab? Is my faith really making any difference? On Rally Sunday, I used an illustration. It was actually a story told by the pastor at the First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, a renowned theologian and biblical scholar by the name of Sinclair Ferguson. And Ferguson, if you were there on Rally Sunday, heard this story, Ferguson said that he was at a wedding reception on one occasion, and he was just sitting there at a table talking to a friend. And this waitress went by with a tray full of of dirty dishes. You've seen those trays, you know, those gigantic trays. She's a little woman carrying this huge tray piled high, and she slips, and she falls, and everything goes crashing down. And Ferguson said what most of us would say, Poor girl! Somebody ought to help her! (laughs) At which point his friend said, Well, Ferguson, if you think so, why don't you help her? And he realized that's right. His expression of kindness, his expression of concern, what was it? It was worthless, wasn't it? It was dead, it was meaningless. Because real concern has hands and feet. Real concern gets up from the table, goes over and helps the poor girl up, and it assists in cleaning up the mess. James is not denying what Paul wrote, that we're saved by grace through faith alone, but he is insisting that we're not saved by a faith that is alone. It is a faith that makes a difference in the way we live, in the way we act, in the way we conduct our business, and as we're going to see next week, in the way we talk, in the way we use our tongues. So may God grant us the grace that leads to regeneration, that produces a living faith, that makes a difference. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for these words. And we thank you that Martin Luther was not successful in tearing the book of James out of the New Testament. We need to hear these words. They are troublesome to us. They prick our conscience. That's one of the reasons why James has not always been the most popular book in the New Testament. It's not just because of Martin Luther. It's because these words really do cut through. They really do force us to take a good hard look at ourselves and ask ourselves, is it all service that we give to you or does it really make a difference? Lord, grant us the grace to look at our lives and to see if the fruit is there, the fruit of good living, the fruit of the Spirit. Grant us the grace to look and see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And if there are some areas where we need to be pruned, then come, Lord, with your shears. And whatever it takes, prune us that we might have a living life faith. For Jesus' sake. Amen. So next week, the taming of the tongue